Hello and welcome to the GLT podcast series with the Greenshaw Learning Trust and Friends Book Club, where we talk all things teaching and learning with leading educationalists across the world. My name is Rhiannon Rainbow. And my name is Dave Tushingham. This is a place to enjoy listening to organic conversations between teachers and authors, a journey in bringing the latest evidence-based literature into the classroom. Welcome to the 11th episode of the Greenshaw Learning Trust podcast with the GLT Book Club. Where we'll be discussing mathematical beauty, what is mathematical beauty and can anyone experience it by Daniel Pearson. Let's get stuck in. When? Okay, so I'm just pressing record. Okay, so thank you very much. Uh, welcome to GLT Book Club. And uh, tonight we very excitedly have our guest author, Dan Piercy. So thank you ever so much for joining us, Dan. We are a little later than uh, we usually are, and that's because you're joining us from Switzerland. So it's a slightly different time zone. Um, I'm going to do a very brief introduction, if I may, and then I'll be handing over to Dave, who will introduce why we've chosen this book and uh, the specific section of the book, and then we'll hand over to you as well. So Dan is a maths teacher from the UK who now teaches in Switzerland. You have previously been a head of department. You've been on senior leadership teams, I think in three different countries. Um, and you also joined us live as a guest author when we did a workshop at the Mathematical Association's 150th conference earlier this year. And it was the first time that had ever happened and it was absolutely brilliant. So thank you so much for all of our support already. And that was before this evening's session. So I will be handing over to Dave now. Over to you, Dave. And get the unmute button done. Thank you so much for that, Rita, and thank you so much, Dan, for joining us today. And um, just a little bit behind um, the reason why um, we chose your book as soon as we found um, that you were going to be joining our book club um, as, a, as somebody um, in the audience, just, um, just enjoying some of these books, we thought um, you'd be the perfect person to come and actually share your work. Um, with us, we've really enjoyed reading um, around the, the idea of um, beautiful mathematics. And, um, and it links in really nicely to, to some of the sessions that we've been looking at previously, where more and more for people who've joined us in the previous sessions, um, the, the importance of subject knowledge and understanding your subjects, the depth of the subjects and, um, and, and how we can encourage students to really enjoy um, what, they, what they learn in the classroom. Um, it's a real pivotal part of, of having success in, um, in, in producing mathematicians, in supporting students to become that mathematician and um, supporting students to, to find what they like, to find what they enjoy and to, to, to further their, their knowledge, their understanding and to become that expert. Um, and, and the particular um, part of the book that really stood out for me when looking at that beauty in mathematics, as a mathematician, I really wanted to understand what this beauty really means. And it's, it's something that's incredibly difficult, of course, to define. And um, the mathematical aesthetics framework, I felt, really helped me to understand um, a little bit more about um, what mathematical beauty really looks like um, in that journey um, from becoming, um, from a novice to becoming that expert. And, and, um, and it just, it was just something which I thought um, I, I could really imagine myself taking into the classroom um, and, and just completely changing the, the language that I use with my students now so that we can appreciate the subject. And it's not just about learning mathematics and doing mathematics, but it's about loving mathematics too. Um, and it just seemed to then therefore link really nicely into a lot of the other literature that we've been reading. Um, and, and amongst that, I think I called it on Twitter a dangerous book um, because I, I started reading it and um, and very honestly, I just thought, you know what, I've got to put this, uh, put this down because if I carry on, I'm going to just want to do mathematics. I'm not going to want to teach mathematics. I just want to do these questions and I just want to enjoy the mathematics myself. And so I did have to put it down at one point. But um, it's an incredible book. And, uh, and um, just, to, just to say thank you for joining us. And, and if you wanted to talk a little bit about sort of what your thoughts are behind it and, and why you've written it, it would be amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. No, thank you for the introductions. Um, I... Uh... I think I've, I've said this a number of times now, I feel, because I've presented on it a few times at conferences and things. And obviously I joined I joined you guys for the ATM conference as well, which is great. Was it MA? Sorry, I've got to, I've got to be very careful now, haven't I? I can't, can't see ATM when it's MA. <laughs> that's um, all right. We can, uh, you can always join us at an ATM conference at some point, Dan. That's fine by me. 
Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, well, I get some dodgy DMs now. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, um, I, I feel, I've said it a few times, but I will say it again. Basically, um, five years ago, six years ago, I forget now how long, how long ago it was. It took, a, took, took me a long time to write the book, having, you know, because I was writing it very much with a, with a toddler and a four-year-old and, um, and a one-and-a-half-year-old. One so I was, I was doing a lot of the writing during that time and being in senior leadership and head of maths at the same time and things. It was a pretty intense time in my life. Um, but um, but the, I, I think that the reason why I was writing, part of the reason for writing it is it took me away from all the kind of pressures and strains and things of, of everything else that I was doing that I felt was, you know, I had high accountability for lots of things. So, but, um, but yeah, it started with a conversation in, um, in the staff room with an English teacher friend of mine. And uh, he's very proud of the fact that he started this journey. But he was, he was reciting some of the poems that, because uh, he's got an incredible memory, so he was reciting off by heart some poems that the students had written that they presented that morning. And then because in the IB Diploma Programme, there's a course called the Theory of Knowledge course, the TOK course, which is a critical thinking course. But also it's really, it's a, it's a lovely course if you don't know anything about it because students have to learn about the nature of each discipline. So they learn about the nature of mathematics. They don't do mathematics in that course. They really learn about what it means to be a mathematician and what it means to do mathematics and the, hist the historical elements of maths as well. Um, but anyway, he was a TOK teacher. So he was also interested from the perspective of being a theory of knowledge teacher as to what I could say about what mathematical beauty is. He kind of read some things in a textbook and, and learned some things online. And, um, and as I've said a number of times, I did a stupendously terrible job of, of describing mathematical beauty. And what I did, I think, I think it's what a lot of people would probably do, is they, is, you know, they kind of flail a little bit and you know, they talk, talk about might, might, might mention things about being kind of awestruck by certain results. And then they'll give a result that they, they personally were awestruck by. And often that will be at something way too high a level for, 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 you know, for someone like I was talking to. Um, and so I, you know, I had a terrible job of explaining it. And then it, it kind of made me go away and think, well, you know, I've been a bit, I'm only, I'm only in my 15th year of teaching, um, but I, th I think it was obviously after about 10 years of teaching and I spent a huge amount of time kind of developing my pedagogical content knowledge and, you know, and everything surrounding stuff. And I started to feel like, what am I going to, what am I going to dig into next? What's my next thing? Just to make those incremental improvements that you tend to make after 10 years rather than huge improvements. And I just thought that mathematical beauty um, was something that I'd never really read much about. And, um, and I, I kind of had a sense of it. And I kept on having more senses of it as, as I kind of taught more, I think, as well as, as I made more connections in my head about things. And, uh, and I thought, right, well, let's go and just find out. So I'll just go and read a book. And it turned out that I, I just couldn't find a book that I felt was kind of at the, the right level for me. So that's, 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 what it all, that's where it all came from, just the fact that I couldn't find a book that I, I really thought would explain it helpfully to either myself or other math teachers that maybe don't have math degrees or, um, or maybe even um, you know, students, A-level students or the math students. So it's very much written for math teachers, A-level A -level students, um, that, that type of area. No, that's really helpful. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm going to bring Atul's comment in straight away here because his answer was simply, um, every question is beautiful. That's what he's put in the chat. So I'm thinking next time somebody asked me why, why mathematics might be beautiful, I could just quote Atul on that one <laughs> and then reference your book. Um, so Atul's doing our takeaway for us today. Thank you very much, Atul Rana. And I also forgot to say that Harry Allen's going to be doing our slide notes. So it's fantastic. We're going to get that diversity of thinking from the members in the room as well and so thank you so much for explaining that again I know you did a brief recording and introduction for us at the mathematical association but I I do think there's something else that we're able to garner and gather every time we we hear you talk about it because it is it's a story that I know that I will have also found difficult and at times when somebody said to you why do I enjoy mathematics? And it's so difficult to articulate. I was listening to, I've been listening to the Farnham Street podcasts, which are from the Knowledge Project with Shane Paris. And he was, um, I started at the beginning, as you what one must, he was um, interviewing a maestro, so maestro Alexander Shelley. And he said that people also find it difficult to articulate why they enjoy a piece of music. 
and why they find music peaceful, uh, peaceful, beautiful. And he made a lot of connections actually between mathematics and music. And I was listening to that the other day and I just thought so much of it linked with what you've been saying and your book and about how it, it helps to give us an, a, a way to articulate it um, better than I'm doing at the moment, which is what Dave was um, talking about at the beginning. So that is absolutely enough for me. So what I would like to do um, now, if I may, is, is open it up to the room to see if anybody else would like to raise a reflection or ask a question. Understandably, Dan has said nothing too complicated, please, but you are absolutely brilliant at the Mathematical Association. So thank you for that one. Um, Dave, you've raised your hand. Yeah, coming in very selfishly, I've just been speaking and uh, straight in again. Um, but I was you know, one of the things that um, I've been sort of challenged with from reading the book is how I'm going to now implement this in my classroom practice. And so thinking about maybe particular topics that um, are, are sort of lend themselves more nicely to, to mathematical beauty and um, helping students to see that or, or particular conversations I can have that would really support students in, in understanding and seeing the the mathematical beauty and, and I really enjoyed um, the, the dialogue within the extracts and, and wondered if there was sort of anything more you could offer um, around that area for, for supporting us in our classrooms. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a really big question. I think there's many, many different answers to that. Um, and one thing I should say as well is that I very rarely get to talk about this. So, um, so in the sense that you know, I, I wrote something and then it's not something that people often ask me about. So a lot of the things that I think about, I, I rarely kind of get tested in any type of dialogue. So if you feel like I say something that you disagree with, please, I'd love to hear from someone else about it. It's great to be able to, to discuss it in a sense. But from, from a classroom scenario, I guess obviously it was important for, for me as a math teacher to, to kind of try to, to think about that as I was researching about beauty and thinking about beauty. Um, and I guess that uh, that dialogue with Bob, for those people that have, that have read the book at the end, um, is something that I thought I would be able to do more often, like in, the, in a classroom setting. So I'd be able to kind of like just bring the students along with me on a journey. So I did, you know, so that there are times in which I've, I've kind of almost, almost written down a script, a dialogue script of, of you know, of, of, of a particular thing and I want to bring them through a journey. To the point where they are you know awestruck they're interested they're uh, you know all, all the things that you, that you that we want to kind of all the experiences you want to gain so for example um if, we if we're talking about dialogues first of all um then it's i wouldn't say i'd say that i would i'd say that they were rare first of all to get incredibly good dialogues but i i can i guess i have some principles for a dialogue when i think when i think about it just as, as i'm talking right now um, and my principles are the first thing is it's got to be it's got to start accessibly, of course, and that was kind of a, a standard principle for, for teaching, I guess, as well. Um, but it's got to start accessible and it would be lovely if you, if you could start with a hook as well. So an accessible hook. Um, and then I think that moving from that, you want to you want to kind of gain some type of unexpectedness, surprise awestruck is the word that I often use for that. Um, those of you that have read the book are probably aware of how centrally I put the I, I put unexpectedness and surprise into the framework. It's a little bit different to what people before have done with criteria for beauty. Um, you know, people have often mentioned it, but not put it so centrally. I believe it to be the most central element of mathematical beauty. Um, and so, and so, like I want to kind of try to generate some something in terms of unexpectedness or surprise if I can. And then to finalise, it's really important to me that students get some sense of the power. Of mathematics, and that might be kind of you know within the dom domain of mathematics, how powerful it is you know to connect to other areas of mathematics, or of course for, for students, it's often nice to, to see some applications to something real in, in the universe or in the, or in the world. So, I guess I, thinking about it, I think I have that type of structure in my head when I want to create a type of dialogue, um, and so and so I, I was thinking just just today as I was on duty, I was walking around in the rain. I was, I was thinking about um, a kind of a new dialogue because I've got I've got something coming up next week. I've got scale factors coming up next week, and I thought right, okay, let's let's test myself and see if I can kind of create some type of dialogue. Now, I've not written this down, and I've not you know I've, I've literally just, just just kind of just been thinking about it throughout the day. 
but um, but I thought of something along these lines. Um, so I would I would start by saying something like, "Has anyone had one of those toys?" Where in fact I'll just do it with a few guys, the students. Has anyone had one of those toys in which you you put them in the bath and you and and it kind of says on the packaging that this gets like ten times bigger or this gets six times bigger. Um, well, that was me when I was about five or six years old, and I remember go I remember picking it out in Toys R Us. And, uh, and, and getting home and literally wanted to have a bath at like, for like three o'clock midday. It's like, mum, dad, get me in the bath right now. I want, I want to get this toy straight in there and, uh, and, and, see, and see this thing just, you know, overtake the entire house. Um, and so, and so you know, they didn't let me, I, but I did get into the bath and I, and I was so excited about this toy getting six times bigger. And to my absolute dismay, I couldn't believe the fact that it only got about, you know, one and a half times bigger, maybe two times bigger max. And I, I, I was absolutely livid. I was, I was walking around that house, you know, just with just sort of the worst, foulest mood in the world. Uh, and I, you know, I'd probably say something like, have you ever had that like feeling of just supreme frustration? Maybe you've even been in the same scenario where you wanted something to, you, and I was like, this is false marketing. I'm, I'm gonna complain, I'm gonna write a letter into Toys R Us. This is me at five years old. You know, I can barely write my name. And um, so anyway, from that, I, I guess I didn't do much. I guess I kind of forgot about it quite quickly being a five-year-old. And, um, and then, you know, fast forward eight or nine years and I happened to be sat in a maths classroom. And, um, and even though the examples given in, in, the, in the room like aren't connected at all to that experience, something dawns on me and I, I literally cannot believe it. I realized that actually it wasn't false advertising. Actually, you know, it was just very clever advertising. And I realized that actually what they were doing, what they'd done on the advertisement is say that it gets six times bigger, but they were talking about in volume, of course. And they weren't talking about in length because it, whilst it got one and a half, two times bigger in length around about, it actually in volume gets six times bigger because there are three dimensions, 1.8 times 1.8 times 1.8 is around about six times bigger. And, and I, I kind of this awestruck moment of being like, wow, like that's a really, really clever way to market something. You know, it's very, it's kind of, it's, it's very, it's very sneaky, but it's also clever. Um, and so, and, and 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 so, from there, I think what's really interesting about scale factors, if you, if we kind of go beyond that, if we go beyond my my little experience, um, then it, what I find really interesting about scale factors, they apply to so many other interesting things. So, for example, if you take something like the surface area of an ant. Now, it's really hard to imagine the surface area of an ant. And it's also really hard to imagine the volume of an ant as well. But, you know, the thing about an ant is it's really, really small. And, uh, and if I was thinking about wanting to make an ant bigger, somehow I had kind of some type of machine to make it bigger, um, then, then essentially how big could an ant get is actually kind of a scale factor type question, really. Because the thing about an ant is that it, it, it respires, it takes in oxygen for its skin. And so you can't, you don't want the area to get much, the, the area needs to be in a certain proportion in respect to the volume. Um, and so if you get to a certain point where the, the, the ant can't, can't breathe in enough oxygen because it doesn't have enough area, then, um, then, you know, then you're, you're in real trouble. And it's and it's the reason why actually about you know about 300 million years into kind of life on Earth, ants actually got to about the size of birds. There were there were very big ants on the planet, uh, and that's because um, the oxygen levels were around about 35, 36 percent um, of, of the of the air, whereas now they're more like 20 percent, of course. Um, and so, so if you know the oxygen levels, then you can you can map quite quite kind of carefully predict like how, how big an ant could be. Um, so an ant at about 50% oxygen levels could be the size of a dog. Um, but I feel like I've, I, 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 you can see how by not scripting it out, it's very, it's, it's, it's not good for a classroom right now. Um, so it's, you know, I've not, I've not kind of really linked it carefully to scale factors, area scale factors, volume. And I think, I feel also having kind of stated out loud, but there's no way that I'd start that way with scale factors. I mean, I'd, I'd definitely do a number of lessons, area scale factors, volume scale factors would have, would have done all that. And then the dialogue would just come, you know, just at the start of the lesson, really random. Just like, 
just thinking back to when I, I was just so annoyed when I was five years old, I can't, I can't forget it. I'm going to have to tell you about this and kind of and, and, and make sure that my script was, was very solid so that I was, I was connecting it carefully to the knowledge that we had in class. But like I said, that was very rough and ready. But you get the idea of how I tried to put a dialogue together that started off with something they could relate to, something quite simple. You know, there came something of a surprising element. And then I also tried to then focus that in on an application that kind of showed more of the power of mathematics after that. Um, but again, it, it would need a lot of work. That's obviously dialogue, that's the dialogue part. Um, but in terms, of, in terms of your question about how to bring beauty into the classroom, one thing I would say is that given all of my research and thinking about it, um, I'm very pleased with where I am right now, and that might change, but I'm pleased with the fact that one, I don't really talk about mathematical beauty. I don't use those words in the classroom really. Um, and because I don't know if students really, really, you know, how can they, how can they really connect anything to that at, at the time when they're in school? Um, and most of, most of when I've asked people in, in the past, um, I've asked a lot of math teachers, when they first got a sense of, of mathematics being beautiful. And not just interested in it, not just motivated by it, not just find it enjoyable, when they first got the sense of beauty, then almost all the answers I've had, apart from someone that was Olympiad student, you know, when, when he was about 16, um, was, was at university level or, or post-university level. Um, I, don't, I don't think I've ever had an answer below 16. And, um, and that, that I think connects to most of our experiences of most things, I think. Um, it's often we're looking for the product of something, um, the, the finish line and the goal, rather than necessarily kind of like taking our time to appreciate beauty, any aesthetic beauty in something. So that's, I think that's absolutely fine. And so I don't mention the words mathematical beauty, um, but the things that I'm really trying to really trying to do in the classroom when I can on, on, on the appropriate scenario, not all the time, because the fact that it's beautiful means that it's extraordinary. You know, you're not going to try and force beauty into, into everything, even though you can find elements of beauty in everything, you're, you know, you're going to really highlight elements of beauty when it's appropriate and when, when, when there really are things there to, to be surprised about, uh, for example. So, so I wouldn't try and, I don't try and force it all the time. I try to kind of, I make, I have a few, I have certain lessons and things where I'm in, in these dialogues that I create where I try to gains gives some students a sense of a sense of beauty without even really talking about it um, so if that makes you feel better about the fact that you know someone that's written a book about math will be beauty I'm not trying to get it into class every week even every month you know I'm, I'm maybe I'm maybe doing something once every six weeks kind of thing with a lesson where I'm really focusing a little bit more on that and um, then that's that's the place that I'm, that I'm at right now but in terms of kind of lessons and uh, like actual resources, one thing that I can say is that um, I was really I was really surprised <laughs> to use that word again to, um, to to see that Enrich had some some lovely resources on surprise on unexpectedness. So on if you type in Enrich and you type in surprise explanation mark, then there's primary resources about ten of them. But ten is a great number, you know, when we're talking about something like surprise. Um, and then, um, and Rich also have a secondary kind of resource bank, uh, again, about 10 of them, I think, called Tales of the Unexpected, if, I, if I'm right in saying that. Um, and so, you know, if you're looking to kind of get five lessons where you really try to focus, focus things a bit more on kind of getting, giving students a sense, an aesthetic sense of mathematics, then, you know, you've probably already got them. Um, you know, lying lying around, even even if it's just on the enriched site. Um, but yeah, places that really lend themselves in the curriculum, of course, are places. Things like exponential growth um, is always surprising, um, and that's part. Of, if you, if anyone's read Hans Rosling's book, um, Hans Rosling wrote a book uh, with, in which he gave ten instincts of human beings, and one of them is he called the straight line instinct, instinct uh, where human beings inherently have an instinct to growth in straight lines linearly um, and and it's part of the reason why we struggle so desperately with anything exponential um, so whilst I would never bring anything 
I mean, I think we're all way too tired of COVID to bring anything in, in, in terms of that. I'm not going to bring that into, into a mathematical beauty lesson. But, you know, anything in terms of exponential growth and, you know, rice reward, the standard one, domino skyscraper, the free act task from Dan Meyer, um, you know, towers, the towers of Hanoi, Hanoi puzzle, anything that kind of that, that can give an element of surprise is, is really helpful. And so I would be focusing things on, on surprising unexpectedness, really. I feel like there's probably more that I, I could say, but I feel like um, I've also been talking for a long time. So um, I don't know if other people have questions or something else. I wouldn't worry about the talking because I was quite primed for a lesson then, if, I, if I'm honest with you. That hook absolutely worked on me. And I was just, oh, I, I thought that was fantastic. I think there's something else to it as well, though, is you're passionate about it and you know about it. So I suppose if we want to, uh, 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 sorry for asking this, I suppose if we if we want to use something like this and and demonstrate that or indicate or um, even just expose students to aspects of mathematical beauty, I think it would be beneficial if it, it was an aspect that we ourselves found personally very beautiful. So actually, it's a it's a very personal side of what. Uh, is what we consider beautiful in mathematics. So sometimes maybe picking up a resource from elsewhere wouldn't necessarily work the same unless that really meshed with your own thinking. That's what I'm picking up from this actually is that absolutely worked on me because you care about it. That's an interesting point. I think you're, I think generally speaking, you're right. I think one thing that's interesting to consider though, just um, thinking about your point, is that I feel that, um, I, I, sorry, I'm just looking at the comments at the same time. Um, I, feel, I feel that um, just because you find it beautiful, does that mean, that, I mean, if you project that onto your students, does that mean that they will find everything that you find? Yes, they will connect to your passion, of course, but I'm also very wary of my biases in mathematics and, the questions that I ask, I've got to also, I've got to also take it back to my biases. And that's every single question in maths, like the way that I set up, the way that I think about questions, I want to try to vary my questions to get the greatest sense of you know, the great, the greatest possible variety in terms of prototype theory, of course. And that obviously applies to mathematical beauty as well. So that, but I think you're right, generally, but also I think you've got to be careful not to think that they're going to love the same things that we love. No, absolutely. You've got a fair point there. We, we, we do still need to be bored and balanced in what we're exposing students to with, with regards to that so they can get that opportunity to find the beauty in, in different aspects of maths. Danny, you've asked a, a couple of questions in the chat. Would you, would you mind if I brought you into the conversation here or would you like us to ask Dan on your behalf? Um, I think Dan's already been reading the question that I put in the chat, actually. I think actually... As he was talking, it got answered anyway. So I don't know if actually how much more is going to add. No, that's I mean, okay. That's I, 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 was, I was trying to do two things at the same time. <laughs> I clearly, <laughs> so um, if there was a question that I already answered, then I'll obviously move on if I didn't answer it well. I think you did actually end up, you started talking about dance. And Dan Myers three act maths in your longer answer just now. So I don't think there's anything else we did. Yeah, and of course, of course, Dan Meyer, you know, like, obviously, I'm, I, I imagine I'm, I'm similar to most people that I've, I've tried out a lot of those tasks, especially kind of, you know, eight, seven, eight years ago, six years ago, um, for a number of years. And um, I, I imagine I'm like most people that I found that I, I personally was drawn to them. Um, but actually, they did never worked as well in the classroom as I'd hoped they would. Um, but there are specific tasks. I think there are, for me, there are about six of them. And I could probably state all six of them because I use them year upon year. But, and often, often they do have surprising elements as well, the tasks that I have chosen to use. Um, but they are, there's a lovely resource as well to, to utilize. Thank you, that's very helpful. And sorry to have brought you in there without any warm up at all, Danny. <laughs> um, Dave, you've raised your hand. I'll, I'll bring you in now, if I may. 
I hope that's working. I'm just uh, networks just dropping out a bit. I hope you can hear me all right. But um, yeah, basically, um, it just it's a reflection. Just um, so rather than a question, it's just something which I really um linked to something that I read um, Doug Lemoth talking about, and he was talking about um in sport the idea of the the outcome um and and actually looking at the process and and when you were talking about um, often we're looking for that product rather than actually looking for the beauty itself it just made me sort of connect that to the idea of watching a sports team and how the that they won't be looking at um, how are we going to win this game necessarily in that more sort of passionate language. They'll be looking at what other things that we need to do. Um, and it just made me really think about sometimes we really do um, look for a product and we look to, to get that, that outcome that we desire rather than just sort of standing back and looking at what's actually in front of us. And, um, and, uh, and that was just a reflection that I felt really helped me to tie together. So I just wanted to share that. Yeah. Um, I, I don't have uh, kind of much of a comment, but I, I agree with you. <laughs> um, so is, is it all right if I sort of ask, is it, has anybody else sort of had the um, experience of, of those conversations um, in their classrooms as well? Um, I don't know if anyone else wanted to, to share anything also about um, how, how mathematical beauty might, might look like in your classroom, any thoughts that other people have had um, in, in what, uh, what they do in their classes also. Uh, sorry uh, that's all right i was talking and i still muted um you carry on dan and then at all if you come in afterwards that would be grand i will say that i um i did i kind of had these great visions of um of, of developing a new style of task then i and i i have developed quite quite a number of them actually for myself i still just haven't experimented enough with them yet um, but I did present at a conference a while back on what I call surprising practice, um, and I and I was hoping to spend to put a lot more on my on my site about those things. But I think just life life got in the way. Um, and whilst I've developed probably like I said, I've probably developed about ten now that I'm happy with. Um, I, I still feel like they're kind of a long way from me from me uh, publishing those. I'd like to I'd like to think that I can build a bank of maybe about twenty. I'm hoping to have, like, for example, something like four per year. Um, that's my that's my kind of goal. Um, but that that I think will take me quite some time to to kind of play with, to actually give to classes, and then um, and and modify. Oh, I very much will be looking forward to when they come out. Um, Atul, I think you were going to share a reflection. Yeah. No. Thanks. Thanks for that, Dan. Um, yeah, I was. Uh, going to talk about the um, exponentiation, which is exponential growth. That's one of the, I mean, I'd highly, highly recommend that book, uh, Factfulness by Hans Rosling, because uh, exponential thinking, exponentiation is very unintuitive. And, and I'm quite used to very low attaining students and the I hate maths <laughs> statement. And I know if you, if you love maths and if you are passionate about it, and even if you get someone who hates maths, uh, your enthusiasm, because we are socially wired, um, your enthusiasm will rub off on the student uh, and on anyone really we're talking about the maths. And for me, the, one of the things I do is do this exponentiation exercise with the, with the two T's. So I'll get them like this digital whiteboard and they can make copies of anything. So I'll start them off with one dot. Can you make a copy? Two dots. Can you take those two dots and make a copy? Four dots. Can you take those four dots, select them, make a copy? And this is also linked to that story with the um, the chessboard with the grain of rice on the one one chessboard. And then they say, well, keep doubling and how many will you end up with? And then I'll, after a little while, they realize this thing is like growing like crazy. It's insanely growing. It's going fast. And I tell them, actually, I'll link it up to something like biology. And I'll say, well, you started off as a single cell and within about 20, 30 steps, you ended up as about a trillion cell, a trillion odd cells. And we, we, we remain around a trillion cells for the rest of our lives. Um, and then I also talk about how the human population has grown uh, exponentially since the Industrial Revolution. It was, it was very, very linear. Um, yeah, that's right. Actually, ba babies also grow exponentially. That's mentioned in the book. Uh, in, and then we stop growing but in the if you project the baby's growth in an exponential way when they're first growing you'd end up with a human being that's like 
50 foot tall or something like crazy um and then the thing i like to relate it to them is i show them a video of how the population of the humans have grown since the beginning of time and it's it's, it's like really slow and linear and then we hit this industrial revolution and then it's increasing by like a billion every sort of 20 15 years and now that that gap of a billion is decreasing and decreasing and decreasing and it's taken all of time until there and until the industrial revolution all of known time to get to 1 billion and then i asked my pupils to just tell me their year of birth look up the population now look it up when it was when they were born and it comes out to be roughly a billion or one and a half billion so one and a half billion more people have been added in the entire lifetime of that pupil compared to the whole of human history until the industrial revolution so for facts like these uh it's a, it's a, it's a really good one yeah but no that's that's lovely and like obviously like i said i having read that book it's such a it's such an unbelievable book um for so many reasons but yeah i um i very much got the same senses as you from reading that um i i just as atal was talking um i don't know if it was i think it was something that he said that kind of sparked me to think a little bit more about the question that you asked dave to begin with because it was such a big question it's so it's hard to compartmentalize every single part of it but ultimately um in the book i also do do kind of just very briefly because it's not just a book for math teachers um so i just very briefly mention kind of other elements of, of, of how you can ensure that you're bringing things into the classroom that start to gain aesthetic responses, aesthetic appreciations. And they're all, I think, pretty obvious things, but I think given that we're talking about it, um, it's, it'd be nice just to lay them on the table so that anyone else can comment on them or question. But of course, like when we think about mathematical beauty, we often think about connecting things. So having, ha having multiple, multiple strategies is an interesting one to consider from that perspective. Um, because obviously we, we want to, we want to, like, and, and as I think many of us are aware of kind of in Japan, it's probably the, the primary source of pedagogy to, you know, the, the problem-based lesson in which multiple strategies are developed by the students. And then what I love most about the Japanese, the Japanese method is, you know, obviously when the teacher comes in and often not as an explicit instructor, um, so it's somewhat different to what, what we've all been probably doing more of more recently, but it's more a case of bringing together those strategies and, and, um, and, then, and then kind of assessing which strategy in particular um, has the most power within the domain of mathematics. So, you know, which one transfers best to other areas of mathematics is really, really, is, I think the most important thing for, for a Japanese teacher, I believe. Um, so that's interesting to get, you know, that they're not necessarily looking at the most, the most ingenious method, the simplest method. Um, I, although those things will be discussed. And one question that I often like to, it's just a simple question. I'm sure everyone else uses it, but I do often like to say, what was the most ingenious part of that strategy? If, if that, if that question makes sense in the context, it doesn't always make sense. It's not always, there's not always a most ingenious part. But um, obviously beauty kind of um, elegance is a, is a subset of beauty because elegance is simplicity combined with ingenuity. So if you want to kind of, if you want to, if you want to bring in kind of notions of elegance into your lessons then asking that question, what was the most ingenious part? And obviously, which is the most simplest, which is the simplest strategy, but then most importantly, and I, I agree with the Japanese method, most importantly, which strategy are we going to utilize moving forward? Because it's the most either efficient, in this particular case, or it applies very neatly to lots of different areas within the, within the domain of mathematics. So connections are really important. Um, one thing I say in the book as well is that um, I do I do completely believe that um, that you can't have true beauty without uh, without understanding, and that's that's a kind of that's a little bit of a contentious one because the more you understand, you can get adaptive appre adaptive appreciation responses that actually end up with negatively acquired opinions of something. So one of the, one of the examples I give in the book is the example of the famous uh, economist or mathematician, uh, Francois Lyonnais. Um, and he, he, he acquired a negative opinion of Euler's, Euler's identity. 
which in the book, I'm, you know, I do say like, please don't put this book down just yet. Um, but because who can have, who can acquire a negative opinion of Oliver's identity? But I do, I do get, I, I, and I say in the book, I do get what he means because after, after, can I, I, I think I, I think I could probably just about, just about write down maybe three proofs of of Euler's identity if I, if I'm, if you really push me to do so, and so and one of the ways is very enlightening in terms of what it actually means, and and then when you know what it means, it's kind of like ah, oh, just um, you know movement halfway around a circle to to negative one, but I don't, I don't know, it just it just feels a little bit it just doesn't feel as remarkable. It almost seems like sometimes it can be quite helpful not to understand because there's magic there and there's 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 a real sense of like someone please un unveil this curtain and actually it's better not to unveil the curtain uh, maybe at the time it's a bit like Ramanujan's sum you know the, the one plus two plus three plus four all the way to infinity equaling minus a 12 and it's kind of like a when you when you know why that is in that very specific mathematical context on a complex plane um, then actually it becomes a little bit less remarkable um, so it's interesting, actually, how deepened understanding, like very deep understanding, can reduce the aesthetic aesthetic response. Um, but yeah, I feel like I've gone down a few a few kind of roads there in terms of knowledge and understanding. But of course, you can't have. I don't think you can have like strong aesthetic experience without a performative appreciation. That's an intellectual appreciation of mathematics because we can't obviously we can't sense it. We can't use our senses like we can in other art forms. Um, so yeah, you need knowledge understanding. You need you need um, you need. I think bringing connections is important, and you know, and, and small things like you know, cultural things like not and that making sure that speed isn't more important than depth in the classroom. Of course, you know, little things like that are, are obviously important. Oh, that was fantastic. Thank you so much, Dan. I mean, I could listen to you for hours this evening. Um, Rachel, you've raised <laughs> I, I, I absolutely could. This is, uh, this is just full of so many fantastic ideas and thoughts um, to, to take away already. I don't envy you at all with your takeaway or you, Harry, either with your slide notes. Good, good luck on trying to condense this one. There's so much going on here. Rachel, um, you've raised your hand. Do you mind if I bring you into yeah. the Yeah, you know, you talk about the enriched tasks. Um, so I was trying to design a unit next week for my year sevens where I really don't want it to be on anything in particular being taught. I want it to be about them discovering things and actually getting mathematical thinking. And I was um, chatting with Ann Watson um, for lunch on Saturday. And I was saying, oh, I'm a bit worried they'll, they'll I'll scare them a little bit. And I'm a bit worried actually I'm gonna scare the teachers, teaching it because I'm planning it for the department more than the, the kids. I think the kids will be up for it. And I said, cause we've got this big push on cognitive science and all this stuff. She goes, Cognitive science has its place, but sometimes they just need to be able to, exactly what you said, Dan, they just need to be able to discover and have those wow moments because they'll learn more from that than they wish. You can't break, just stop. You can't break some things down. You've just got to let them have a bit of a struggle, have the wow moments, and then have that discovery because otherwise they won't see the beauty of it. And I thought that ties in perfectly to what you were saying. Um, that sometimes we kind of think about our pedagogy and our teaching methods and we're depriving, we've got to have those opportunities planned where they can have the wow and ahas and <gasps> moments. Is it, it's, interesting, it's funny what you say there. Um, is, sorry, is it Rachel? Sorry, yeah, I can see your name on the screen. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I, I really like the way that Rob Easterway describes it. Uh, Rob Easterway actually didn't, I don't think, develop this little kind of catchphrase. But he says the loveliest moments in mathematics classrooms or when discussing mathematics is the ahs, ahas and ha-has. Um, so, yeah, uh, the ha-has, I think, is, is, is probably harder to get a genuine like, laugh, belly laugh. Um, although I have to say, if you want a genuine laugh, I think those of you that have tried Barbie Bungie and had it actually work effectively, like students are so elated by that. It's more than just a aha, it's a, it's, it's a belly, it's a, just a, it's a supreme celebration. Um, but yeah, the, the ahs, ahas and ha-has. And I would say as well about the discovery elements and you know, discovering mathematics, um, yet yeah, that has become something a contentious thing. But I really like what John Sweller himself said about, about discovery. 
um, and because in an interview with Ollie Lovell on Ollie Lovell's blog, he um, Sweller said that it's absolutely fine to, to do, you know, to do discovery and things. What you have to realize is that some students, maybe a high proportion of students, might not learn something in the moment. They might be so, so kind of focused on the discovery that they're, and, and so, you know, pleased with the task and things, they might not learn a lot. So it's really important to then move on to a reflection phase. And I know in Japan, we talked about Japan before, but the standard phrase that the lesson begins once the problem has been solved. I think it's just a lovely way to summarize that. Um, so, yeah, I think that if you do those things, which you know I love to do, time, you know, here and there, I think as long as the reflection phase, phase is a strong one, then you're still going to get a lot out of the task. It is more risk. These all of these fantastic ideas are more riskier for teachers, aren't they? They with with a lot of the teaching we can be prescriptive we can be formulaic we can have that pattern and this goes into a different domain um and it's lovely to hear a, a different way of thinking about lessons you don't quite know where it's going to go it's lovely to see um i think it was wendy talking about using it with her or, or claire talking about uh, it was Claire actually talking about using it with a, a mixed age group in primary and them having so much fun with it as well, because there's always, there's often that fear that it has to be quite highbrow. And uh, you can make, you can bring it to any age and, and, and help expose them to it that way as well. So, oh gosh, sorry, Karina, I'm, I'm talking over your opportunity to ask a question. I'm going to bring you into the room if I may. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. So I'm actually, uh, I'm just going to quote somebody. Uh, some of you might know him, Stephen Strogatz. He's a mathematician with Cornell. And just about a week ago, he posted something on Twitter, which I thought was really interesting. And it actually resonates a lot with me, especially this past month, since I had to teach polynomial division. And, you know, well, I couldn't really find much beauty in that. But uh, so he's, he was talking about uh, ideally, he sees like three ways that students could take math in high school. Uh, so it would be uh, three paths. So math for future scientists and engineers. Uh, a second path would be math for daily life. And the third one would be math for fun, beauty, and intellectual appreciation. And I'm just wondering, you know, what if you see that as a reasonable wish and, you know, uh, as a possible way, I mean, I would, I would love it. But uh, do you see that happening, and if it makes sense? Yeah, but I am. Um, to be honest with you, um, I love Stephen Strogatz. Yeah, you know, I've got a lot of time for the things that he says and does. But it, it does sound, and uh, it, I'm not saying that this is all of Amer all of Americans or anything. But it does sound a little bit like an American approach, which is to kind of split mathematics up into artificial parts. Um, and so like, I, I think that there is such beauty in, in the applications of mathematics as well. Um, I know in the book, I talk a lot about how Hardy um, kind of did a lot to unfortunately portray this opinion of mathematics that only pure mathematics can be beautiful. Um, but that was, that was a different context. That was during wartime. There's a very good reason why Hardy talked, talked a lot about how you know, beautiful mathematics should only be pure because he was seeing kind of weapons of destruction that had been made using you know, mathematics and, and technology and science. So I completely understand why he wrote the book and, and really focused so, so intensely on, on pure being beautiful and applied, being basically worth, worthless, um, essentially. But yeah, it does feel a little bit like that, you know, in terms of kind of splitting mathematics up in a way that, oh, like just dichotomizes it in a way that I don't feel, feel I would want to do personally. Uh, I would just want to make sure that there were elements of all of those things in one mathematics course. Um, but maybe if Stephen Strogas was here, he'd be able to convince me otherwise. <laughs> he probably would. <laughs> if I could just add something to that, I think it's probably also specific to what happens in US high schools. I know in the UK, you have the A-level tracks, you know, for the end of the high school. While over here, you know, I have, I, I'm teaching a 17-year-old or an 18-year-old that knows that they're going to study art or history, and yet they have to learn about logarithms and, you know, uh, sine functions, you know, and like, why do I have to do this? It's, and a lot of them are still struggling with like basic math, so they're forced to take all these like high-level classes. 
at the time that they, they know which direction, or they think they know which direction they're gonna take in, in their careers. And so I, I feel for my students who have to do that, 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 that they're at the level at the at an age where you know uh, they think that we're in, as adults we're imposing our view of the world and our own preferences because you know we are biased we we love ma uh, math so much but often they come to us uh, and they haven't seen any beauty and it, it feels like it's too late to actually show them any beauty and they just want to get out of high school and so I, I I I'm trying to see now his point of view. Yeah, no, it's, I think that's a, it's a fair point as well. And I'm, it's easy for me to say that because I'm in a system in which, which does differentiate things quite well. The IB diploma, everyone has to take maths, but there's applications and interpretations as a course and analysis and approaches, both at standard level and higher level. And they, they do prepare people for different paths. But like I said, I think it's still, it's still very helpful to bring in all the elements that you, that you mentioned there. But then it's easy for me to, to forget that I teach in a system that's actually quite well developed in that sense. It's fantastic. And I think one of the really nice benefits of us being uh, conducting these virtually is not only do we get diversity because we have, um, I mean, here we're all math specialists, I admit that, but in our book club, we've got people from different phases, people from different subjects join us. But we also now have people who are in different education systems, who are in different locations and um, uh, across the world. And to be able to hear things through through that voice or that lens is is incredibly helpful to then sort of gain um, different uh, opinions and angles for things. So thank you so much. I mean, we've just had conversations there between the US and Switzerland. I mean, it. it it's incredible um, and also what you've been able to bring to the room uh, about the uh, Japanese approaches in classroom as well um, and I know that people are googling things all the time and there's so many links going in the chat so I think I think the chat's going to prove incredibly popular so I didn't know uh, I'm filling up too much time here aren't I? I didn't know if anybody else had anything they wanted to add because sadly we are starting to to come to the end Harry um, you've posted a question would you like to ask it yeah just a quick one if we've got time Dan if you've got a a favorite bit of maths or most beautiful bit of maths in at the current moment, maybe it changes, but um, which you got you able to tell us about? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it's a great question. Um, yeah, I feel that I, I can say that I, I can pinpoint the, the the moment where I felt that I thought, wow, mathematics is beautiful. And I, I'd, I'd never thought about it that before. And it was a university um, and it wasn't the first proof of contradiction that I'd ever seen. Um, but it was, I think I had to probably appreciate proof of contradiction by seeing it a few times already. And then I saw it just with, it was, it was one of those standard lectures where, you know, where he, you, you do just theorem 5.9, theorem 5.10, theorem 5.11, and you just go through writing things down. But, you know, it, one, one particular theorem that really kind of caught my attention as being a relative, about half a page and, and quite... And I, but I can't remember what the what the statement was was now. It was it was a group theory lecture, and um, I just remember just thinking, wow, the proof by contradiction is such an ingenious method of proving something. And I remember thinking, like, I don't think I would have ever thought of that. And that and that I, I feel I feel like you know so often when I when I have that awestruck kind of feeling, a bit deep feeling that someone has reasoned something through. You know, it might have been thousands of years ago that uh, that is that is still a very viable method of dealing with with problems, with any problem, not just mathematical problems. I got a supreme sense of like the deep beauty of mathematics, just in in the kind of logic logical idea and the rationale behind it. And then after that, uh, so that was the first time I ever I really sat back and was like, wow, that's that's incredible. Um, and I felt kind of some sense of. Um, like smallness in the universe in a sense um i think that a lot of us kind of have experienced maybe experienced that where you, you you feel like you're kind of looking into something that it's hard to explain isn't it you feel like you're looking into into something that's kind of embedded into the universe whether it is or isn't like that's how you feel so the same type of feeling came to me with the map seeing the mandelbrot set for the first time um, and that was, you know, that was really awe-inspiring, seeing, seeing the Lorenz attractor for the first time and kind of understanding, you know, the, the, the 
Kartic Motion actually did have some type of display of pattern in it. Um, but like I said, Ramanujan Sum was what's in that, that sublimity. Um, like Ed, I think it's Edmund Burke that kind of describes like the sublime as kind of, uh, you know, a huge, like, almost like being, being at the bottom of a huge mountain and kind of feeling a smallness or like be, or looking across an entire ocean and feeling an insignificance kind of thing in the face of what you're, what you're viewing. And um, I felt that very much with Ramanujan Sun, Sun when I didn't understand it and Oiler's identity. So, um, and yeah, so uh, yeah, I guess that uh, I'm just thinking of them there, but yeah, there's, there's lots of occasions, but I think they're all the standard occasions. Um, and, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to like just make up things that, that are non-standard yeah, because those, those, those things are beautiful for a very, very good reason. They connect different areas of mathematics or, you know, whatever it is that, that they do. So I think it's, I think it's great that those things are often, often described as being beautiful things. But yeah, what about yourself? Have you? <laughs> that was a good answer. Well, like, um, I probably got it wrong now, but the uh, is it the the reciprocals of squares adding up to like something to do with pi squared over? Something mm. I think that's quite neat. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. There's a lovely, there's a lovely animation, ad animation, isn't there, online as well? I can't remember who who made it, but yeah, you're right. It's the yeah the 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 unit fractions of the squares of denominators. It's pi squared over six, I think, isn't it? Yes. Uh, yeah, it's lovely. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So thank you. Thank you everybody so much for, for this evening and, and thank you for your time. You know, for some people it's considerably later than it is for us in the UK. Um, we, we are coming up to the end of the session. So I, I, I will round it off if that's okay. Um, and, and start making sure that I give Atul an opportunity for, for his reflections as well, for his takeaway for the session. Um, it's just been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you to everybody in the room for the chat, um, for the engagement, for, for, for your presence and, and what everybody everybody has brought to this this evening. Um, I will say as well that we are looking um, in two weeks, we are working with Lekha Sharma. She's gonna be looking at her curriculum to classroom book with us, but for now, um, I would love it if it's okay at all. Would, would you mind um, sharing your takeaway for the session with us? Because at the moment, I'm just, I'm, a, I'm, I'm all inspired actually. It's, it's been incredible to listen to Dan and everybody else this evening. Yeah, great. How long have I got? An hour? <laughs> I think you're gonna need it. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, thanks Daniel for uh, popping in and um... Yeah, great. I mean, I've been making making loads of notes and it's like a whole page of them. So I'll, I'll try and be succinct. Um, yeah, just coming back to Dave, uh, it's I mean, it's not just about doing and learning maths, which we are involved in doing. It's kind of appreciating the beauty of it and being explicit about it. Um, what I really like in Daniel's book is um, you've got a storytelling narrative right right from the very beginning. So you have this quest where you have the staff member asking the question and uh, uh, you're going in this quest of how do you explain it next time? So it, it all, it's, it's a great thing. It's, it's, it's a question and mathematicians are curious. So he's asked a question and you've gone on this quest to answer the question. And you know they, it might not resolve, you're still looking at ways of explaining that. Um, and I really liked your point as well, Ree, about music for, for me that I resonate with that as well. So. For me, uh, I talk about maths, the music in maths, like signature, timing, harmonic form, and sign and cause, etc. Harmony, music, harmony. So there's there's loads of hooks, but all you know, it's because I personally find that fascinating, uh, and if if I find it beautiful, then I will convey that beauty to my my, my students and my pupils, and they will. Uh, we are socially wired as Homo sapiens to respond to stories and to other other humans uh, in the way we project that uh, from. So uh, I also really liked that quote that in Japan that you said, uh, the lesson begins once the problem has been solved. Um, and uh, Chris McGrain also has this very similar quote. He's like, the answer to the question is probably one of the least interesting things uh, for me. I'm actually really interested in how 
what it makes you think about what you know what the process is um and another mark mccord one is it's it's kind of weird just to look at a question and know the answer straight away that's that's really unmathematical in some ways because mathematicians quite like that state of being here's this question and what on earth does it even mean on where, where do i start and then we had this Fermat's last theorem. We had Simon Singh on Mass Chat Live, a shameless plug there, and he said, in solving Fermat's last theorem was, uh, it's it's a bit like stumbling around in a dark room, uh, which you mentioned in your book as well, Daniel, uh, and you find some some things and you start to get a sense of orientation, or oh, this is thing that's there, and that's the other thing is there, my chair is there, and at some point you find the light switch and you switch it on, and then you literally get enlightenment and you know that's 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 the kind of thing we want to convey to our students and we want to be feeling that sense of enlightenment and i think yeah that's probably a great place to finish at and just to finish off with is like we want these ahs ha's and ha ha's and uh yeah so that's a, that's a probably a, as as much of a summary as i can do in three minutes no, that's absolutely incredible. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I also like the fact that the R's, ahas, and ha-has has um, a palindromic and a, a sort of symmetrical and rotational symmetry aspect to the use of the letters there as well. Um, but only in a room of mathematicians could I get away with saying that and not being laughed out the room. <laughs> No, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you ever so much, everybody. I'm going to stop the recording now.